This past summer, Emily and I celebrated 11 years of marriage, and we were very glad for that, and it's been a a wonderful 11 years. And in so doing, it, it reminded me of kind of the journey a little bit. You reflect at milestones, and I want to take you back a little bit on a journey down memory lane of before we got married, that summer before our wedding, where I was doing some initial ring shopping and saving money and If you recall that time in your life, perhaps doing research and calling friends who've recently gotten engaged or married and trying to find where's the right store to go to and trying to figure out, well, what are these four C's of diamond shopping, right? The color and cut, clarity, carrot, maybe maybe you remember that. I remember talking to Emily and saying, let's go out and look at some rings and trying to figure out what store should we go to and how far do we have to drive so that we can make sure we won't see anyone we know while we're there. (laughs) I remember we got to the store and talked to the manager and he was telling me all about the lighting in the store. There's a particular kind of light that they have that shows so that the, the diamonds can sparkle the greatest. And there's a particular kind of glass they have so that you're not missing any of the shine. There's the the little black box around the diamond so that that sparkle just pops right off of the dark background with the light all around it. Well, long story short, I ended up picking the ring and popping the question, and obviously she said yes. And and then I did the next logical thing, and I went out and I bought the shirt you see on the screen for her. (laughs) I figured we needed to go to the Reds game in style, and I was probably more excited about the, well, I wasn't more excited about the shirt, but I, I was more excited about that than she was about the shirt. Let's put it that way. We were both more excited about the ring uh, and kind of contrasting the baseball diamond with the, the diamond on her finger. Um, but whatever the case, this morning's sermon is titled, Disciples Dig Diamonds. Not like they dig for them, but like chicks dig diamonds. They enjoy them, so disciples enjoy diamonds. And, and I do think Kidding aside, there's a significant parallel between a diamond ring and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, against the black backdrop of sinful human hearts, the diamond of the gospel dazzles in incredible ways. And the darkness of the human heart and the glory of the gospel are seen most clearly by the bright lights of Scripture and the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And individual believers... And gathered churches together, they both display and protect the gospel, much like a wedding band with the prongs displays and protects that ring. So this morning's sermon, you might summarize in just a few short words, is simply saying this, disciples display and protect the gospel. Disciples display and protect the gospel. That's what we'll see in 1 Timothy 1, chapters, or verses 12 through 20. We are this week in the third week of a new sermon series titled A Playbook for Disciples as we move through the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. We know that all Christians are called to be disciples and make disciples, and that to be a disciple simply means to be a learner, to learn the words and the ways of Jesus. And just as Jesus made disciples, so he calls us to make disciples. That was the main idea we saw two weeks ago. Disciples make disciples. And so here at Parkside, we're working to build and to cultivate a culture of discipleship where it's simply normal for Christians to be making disciples in every aspect of their life. 
for them to be doing intentional spiritual good to help others follow Jesus. And this morning, what we're going to do is continue this series with three actions of disciples specifically related to how disciples can display and protect the gospel. The three actions will form our outline, and they are this. Disciples reflect honestly, disciples receive gratefully, and disciples wrestle persistently. They reflect honestly, receive gratefully, and wrestle persistently. Let's start with, with the first. Disciples reflect honestly. We'll be going back to God's Word regularly, so I hope that you'll keep it open in your lap so we can continue to look back to it because we know that's the source of all authority and truth. Look back at verse 12 with me and, and see how Paul is reflecting honestly on his life. I'll read up through verse 15. Here's what we read in God's Word. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We read here in these couple of verses, Paul looking back on his life and basically declaring his moral bankruptcy. He says, I'm not a good person. There's four words in verse 13 that we read through. He says, I was a blasphemer. I hated sound doctrine. And I was a persecutor. If you're not familiar with Paul, he actually, before becoming a Christian, had murdered Christians. He says, I hated those who taught sound doctrine. And I was insolent. I didn't know what insolent meant, so I looked it up this week. Maybe you're familiar with the term, but I wasn't. It means to be rude and arrogant, lacking respect or self-control. He says, that was me. And I was actually an opponent of the gospel. Notice what Paul is not doing here. Paul is not denying his past. He knows that the gospel has freed him from what could have been a crushing guilt of his past. Maybe you know a crushing guilt of your past. And Paul is saying here, because Jesus has paid it all, and all to him I owe, sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow, and I no longer have a load of guilt that I must carry. He can reflect honestly. But we also notice that Paul's heartbreak over his sin isn't relegated into the past tense. Look back at verse 15. Notice he's not in the past tense in verse 15. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't say I was the foremost. He says I am the foremost. You see, in the present tense, what the gospel does is it frees him to reflect honestly on the sin in his life. And there's three statements in the New Testament where Paul makes the sort of self-assessment here. And I think it's so fascinating to watch the flow of thought in these three statements. So the first time Paul makes a self-assessment statement like this is in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this is one of the first books he ever writes. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, up on the screen, here's what he says. For me, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. 
So if there, there's like 12, 15 apostles, he says, I'm kind of a bench warmer on that team. I'm, at the, I'm number 12, number 13, 14, 15, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. And then a couple of years after writing the book of 1 Corinthians, he writes the book of Ephesians. And notice, a couple of years later, as he grows as a Christian, how his self-assessment changes in Ephesians 3.8 on the screen. He says, I am the very least of all the saints. He says, I used to be, I was number 12 in line. And maybe there was 5,000 Christians at that time, we don't know exactly. He says, no, but I'm not number 12. Actually, the more mature I become as a Christian, the more clearly I see my sin, I'm actually kind of number 5,000. I can reflect more honestly the deeper I go into the gospel. And then we come to the book of 1 Timothy, which is written several years after the book of Ephesians. Paul continues to grow in maturity. And what does he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Not just the least of the saints. I'm the chief of sinners, a different translation says this. You see, friends, one mark of Christian maturity is that you begin to see your sin more clearly and you're more bothered by the sin that you see. That's a mark of Christian maturity. You can reflect honestly on what's happening in your life. And as you grow as a Christian, you should be sinning less, but while you grow as a Christian, you become more bothered by your sin, even if it's, quote-unquote, smaller sin. Things that wouldn't have phased you five years ago begin to bother you more and say, that's not living in step with the gospel. I can reflect more honestly on what's in my heart here. You see, disciples of Jesus are freed by Jesus to reflect on who they are without Jesus. You might want to write that down if you're taking notes. Disciples of Jesus are freed by Jesus to reflect on who they are without Jesus. Disciples reflect honestly. And so rather than looking inward and denying the sin that I have or failing to think about it, that's one option. You could just kind of act like it's not there, that significant. Or you could fall into despair and say, oh my word, woe is me. God could never use me. You say, no, no, no. I reflect honestly and know that Jesus has covered it. You say, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, I neither deny it nor fall into despair because disciples of Jesus are freed by Jesus to reflect on who they are without Jesus. Now you talk about reflecting on your sin and it starts to sound and feel a little negative. There is a positive comment in this section that Paul makes about himself. There's one in verse 12. Take a look with me. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. He says, Christ judged me faithful. Now notice, there's no mention of Paul's competence here. He doesn't say, oh yes, the Lord looked down and saw that I was a gifted writer, gifted speaker, had all these gifts and abilities, and said, yeah, I think I want you on my team. He doesn't comment on his competence. He says, the Lord judged me faithful. In fact, from other passages, we know that Paul wasn't very impressive. 
And it's hard for us to think about him in this way because we know Paul is this guy who's written huge chunks of Scripture. And to say, well, he wasn't that impressive is quite difficult for the modern mind to wrap itself around, right? Like, yeah, Paul, he seems kind of like up on a mountaintop type guy. But in 2 Corinthians 11, we read that he was not a polished speaker. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I didn't come with any eloquent words. There were other preachers that would get your attention in ways that I didn't. And in 2 Corinthians 10, the rumor, the word on the street, when Paul would come to town is this. The guys would say this, yeah, he writes pretty good letters, but he doesn't look that impressive and his sermons are kind of lame. And it sounds funny to say it that way, but we have across the whole of Scripture this testimony that Paul didn't look that impressive and he probably wasn't that good of a preacher. But God says, faithfulness I see in this man. And so it reminds us that God is more interested in your availability than your ability because he uses the foolish things to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong. And we must ask ourselves, am I open to being used by God? And do I see his strength and his ability as more significant than my strength and my ability? Or do I see my weakness? Do I see my sinfulness? And because of those things hold back, and am I unwilling to take a bold step for God in making disciples, in telling my friends who don't know Jesus about Jesus, and inviting them to church? Disciples can reflect honestly on who they are, both in their weakness and in their sinfulness. And so as we think about applying this point, you might simply want to ask yourself, How frequently am I confessing specific sins to God and to others? Or, to use the point, how honestly am I reflecting on my own life? You see, Paul isn't simply confessing his sin to God here. He's writing a letter to Timothy in the church. In a way, he's confessing to others, right? You see that, and James says there's healing in the confession of sin. And it's critical when we confess, both to God and to others, that we name the sin, we be specific, and we not hide behind generalities and ambiguities. Those can be fake confessions, we might say. So rather than say, hey, I was frustrated and I'm sorry about that, say, no, I was frustrated, but I was feeling really selfish, and I acted out in pride and spoke in ways that simply were unkind. Will you forgive me for this thing that I said in pride? Now, that's a much harder confession to make, both to God and to someone you've sinned against, is it not? And it tests our mettle. Do I really believe that Jesus has paid it all and all to him I owe, and I no longer have to keep the mask on and appearances up? Do I really believe that disciples of Jesus have been freed by Jesus to reflect on who they are without Jesus? And one way... One way that I can know that you're believing the gospel that I'm preaching here is when you're becoming more and more able to confess sin specifically and regularly, both to God and to others. Disciples reflect honestly. Second point that we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that disciples receive gratefully. They receive gratefully. We see this in verses 16 and 17. Look back at your copy of God's word with me. Paul writes, But I received mercy 
For this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He starts out, he says, I received mercy. And his response is gratitude. Now, to see the response of gratitude, it's the, the whole section is kind of one flow of thought. So you go back up to verse 12, and what does he say in verse 12? I thank him who's given me strength. Response of gratitude. I've received mercy. Response of gratitude tied throughout there. He says, I didn't get what I deserved. I didn't work for what I received from the Lord. I didn't earn what I received from the Lord. I received it as a gift. And what is the gift that he says? Eternal life. Paul says, I am a walking example of how this works. If you're not a Christian, here's the message that Paul is giving. He's saying, you can't be good enough to earn your way to God. And you can't be bad enough that the blood of Jesus wouldn't cover your sin and make a way for you to be with God. You can't be good enough to get there and you can't be bad enough that he wouldn't save you. The progression of what we see in this text is really important. He says, I'm going to receive this mercy with gratitude and then go and tell others and then overflow in songs of praise. That's the progression. Now, let me show it to you as we walk through. He says, uh, I receive this so that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example for those who are to believe. In other words, Paul is engaged here in storytelling. Here's my story. Tell it as an example to others. He doesn't unpack all the glorious truths of the gospel in this little section like he might in the book of Romans, for example, or the book of Ephesians. He says, no, here's what happened in my life. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, tell them my story because people connect with personal stories. Christian, use your story, how God has worked in your life. Use it as a bridge to connect with people who don't know Christ. Use it as a bridge to strengthen those who do know Christ. And maybe like Paul, you've got an adult conversion where it was surprising and you didn't see it coming and God worked in amazing ways in your life and you can tell others that story. And maybe others of you like me were saved as a young child and you don't have as dramatic of a testimony to share. And you're saying, Justin, how do I use my story as a bridge to strengthen believers and reach those who don't know Christ yet? And I might suggest one way you could do that is to say, hey, we're coming out of a crazy season over the last couple of years. Pandemic, fake news, don't know who you can trust anymore. And you could use your story to tell someone else, say, hey, I found a source of secure footing and trusted truth, and I found it in the Word of God. Could I tell you how that has helped to ground me in what has been a very unstable last couple of years? You might say to a neighbor, you say, hey, I know you see crazy stuff happening on the news. Where our culture's headed, and you may not be a Christian, but you recognize some of this stuff is not good. Our church recently did a series about common issues, hot topic issues. Would you be interested in listening to this sermon where we just talked about issues of justice or of sexuality, because I found the Bible grounds truth for me in profound ways, and perhaps this would be beneficial 
for you as well. You're using your story of how God has grounded you in truth as a bridge to connect with people just like Paul did. He doesn't stop at telling others. He actually erupts into a song of praise. In verse 17, look back at your copy of God's word. Here's what he says. You can almost hear him getting excited. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's almost like if you could go back into Paul's life, you see him in this, this period of personal reflection. Here's who I was without Christ. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And I'm actually the foremost of sinners, but praise God, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And the more he reflects on it, the more fired up he gets. And his song is this like majestic, sweeping praise to the God of the universe, seeing how otherworldly he is, how big he is, how beyond us he is. He bursts out in song. And it reminds us that when we sing, it's not like the appetizer for the meal of the sermon. No, singing has real protein for the believer. In fact, when you think ahead to heaven, there might be preaching in heaven, but we don't have a Bible verse that tells us there will be. So maybe there won't be preaching in heaven, but we do know there will be singing in heaven for all eternity. I tell you how excited I was just a few moments ago as we're singing, come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. I'm sitting over there, just turned around and just listen to people singing and hear your voices raised to God. Man, Heaven will be something like this. I can't wait. I can't wait. I think it's why we see in the New Testament, Paul and other authors saying we should sing to one another, to encourage one another. So when we gather, we're not seeking here to produce a deafening concert, but a venue where we can hear one another singing, knowing that throughout all Christian history, the instrument of the church has been the human voice. Other instruments come and go, but that's the constant. And in fact, every Tuesday, we have a, a meeting among our staff where we review almost every single minute of the service. And the first question we ask every single Tuesday, how did the congregation sing? Because you see the love of God welling up in our hearts and overflowing in song like it did here for Paul. We think it's a critical mark of a healthy church. And even as we talk about some of the auditorium remodel conversations, you've heard me reference, could we adjust this space so that it would be more conducive to congregational singing, where we can hear one another singing? This is why, because you see it in the scriptures. But we also recognize this. It's it's one thing to have words of gratitude. We said Paul received gratefully, right? It's one thing to have words of gratitude, It's another thing to have a life changed by gratitude. Maybe you can imagine a time when a a kid has a birthday party, receive a bunch of gifts, and you go through all sort of the token, thank you, mom and dad, thank you, brother and sister, thank you, aunt and uncle, thank you, grandma and grandpa, little hugs. You go home, and after a long day of celebrating, they're tired, worn out, high strung, and they absolutely have a meltdown and start yelling at everyone. And as parents, you're thinking, I have busted my tail for you all day long. And you say, thank you like this. I know you had words of gratitude, but it doesn't seem like it's a life shaped by gratitude is basically what you're saying in that moment, right? The words are good. I'm thankful for those. I'd rather see the life. 
So I wonder as a body, how would we know if that's us? What would that look like? Not just as individuals, but as a community. And communities that receive with gratitude are shaped in profound ways. They take Jesus incredibly seriously. And they're able to laugh at themselves because they don't take themselves too seriously. You might say it's a difference between a community marked by performance and a community marked by grace. See a couple examples here on the screen of what the difference is. Communities of performance have actions that are driven by duty. That's the first one. Whereas communities of grace have actions that are driven by joy. I don't have to. I get to. I've received and I'm grateful. Communities of performance see failure as absolutely devastating because I have to keep the appearances up. Whereas communities of grace see failure as disappointing Absolutely, but there's hope in the gospel. And as we've received grace, we understand there's hope to move forward in grace. In communities of performance, the community must appear respectable. Whereas if communities of grace, the community is messy. Sometimes we show up and say, I'm bringing myself here as much as I can be present here in my mess. It doesn't always look right but we're living and walking in grace together. Communities of performance say the leaders must appear sorted and having it all together, whereas communities of grace are marked by leaders who are vulnerable and can show their weakness and confess their sins. Communities of performance see meetings as a performance, whereas communities of grace see meetings as a participation where this is one aspect of the life of the church. And our gathering here doesn't start at 10.30. It starts at about 10.10, with hugs and warm welcomes and prayers together. And it doesn't end at 12. It carries on through the week. Oh, how we long for communities marked by grace. And friend, I simply ask, how are you at Parkside Bible Church building a community of grace rather than a community of performance? Because to receive mercy with gratitude is a lot more than merely saying thank you or singing a few songs. To receive the gospel requires that there be a community transformed by the gospel, that gospel doctrine produce a gospel culture. Disciples receive gratefully. That brings us to our our third and our final point. Disciples wrestle persistently. They wrestle persistently. Some of you will appreciate my good Baptist impulses there of trying to get the R words going, and I ran out, so I had to utilize the W to help get the, uh, the consistency. You know, the first two points were a little bit more about how disciples display the gospel. I said disciples display and protect the gospel. That's the main thing that we're saying today. The first two talk about how do we display the gospel. And this last one gets more at how do we protect the gospel. Look back at verse 18 in your copy of God's Word. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Notice the imagery that Paul gives to Timothy. He says, wage the warfare. 
He says, Timothy, this is going to be hard. Like a giant wrestling match. It's going to require vigorous effort and you will be strained beyond your ability. You're going to wonder at times if you can keep going. He says, Timothy, this is normal Christian living. Friends, I want you to know that anybody who tells you that coming to Christ makes life easy and happy and swell all the time isn't telling you the truth, and they're not reading their Bible. And you can take them to many passages, but this is one to demonstrate that. Verse 18 says that Timothy has been given a charge. This charge I entrust to you, O Timothy. And it begs the question, well, what's the specific charge that's been entrusted? It's to fight for gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And this whole chapter one is kind of a big flow of thought. So we're going to see the charge given by looking further back into chapter one. So look at verse three. Here's the charge for gospel doctrine. Verse three, Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. And the second part of the charge in verse five, here's what Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture, Timothy, fight for these things. And you ask, well, how do I fight for these things? How do I wrestle persistently for these things? We look at verse 19. What does Paul say in verse 19? By holding faith and a good conscience. Paul, a couple chapters later, would say something very similar. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, he says, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So all of that to say, Paul is, is saying, Timothy, sometimes it's going to be hard to fight for sound doctrine. Timothy, you're going to get tired. The battle might wear you down. People are going to tell you that doctrine divides. Timothy, stay at it. It's worth it. And you say, Timothy, oftentimes it's hard to keep a close watch on your life because life gets busy and you start running in a hundred different directions while spinning a bunch of plates at the same time and juggling some balls at the same time. How am I spinning plates and running and juggling? I don't know, but I don't have time to keep a close watch on myself. And then you look around, and in the landscaping of your life, you somehow see all these waist-high weeds of sin, and you say, Timothy, keep a close eye on it, because they're so much easier to pull when they're little than when they have a developed root system and they've grown to be as tall as your waist. Timothy, stay at it. And what had happened in Ephesus was there were a couple of guys who'd lost sight of this. They'd made shipwreck of their faith. In modern terms, we would say they deconstructed They didn't keep a close watch on their life and on their teaching. And there's a lot of talk today about deconstruction. It's important that we talk about it and think, how can we help people cling to faith and a good conscience? But we also need to recognize this isn't a new phenomenon. It's a new word for an old happening, and there's truly nothing new under the sun. There's two guys listed. Hymenaeus and Alexander. We might call them Alex and Manny. You read about it and you say, all right, Alex, Manny, what happened to these guys? Did they lose their salvation? What what exactly took place here? 
We know they didn't lose their salvation because if you are truly saved, you cannot ever lose your salvation. You know that God won't get sick of you and change his mind. You can't sin your way out of salvation. And you won't ever get tired of it and say, you know what, I don't want this gift, I'm going to give it back. No, that's not going to happen. In fact, some, some will say it this way. Some would say, once saved, always saved. Maybe you've heard that phrase, that terminology before. I think it's better for us to say, once saved, always following. True Christians, once saved, will always be following Jesus. That's what the whole of the New Testament says. And if someone deconstructs and walks away and never comes back, that's proof that they weren't a Christian in the first place. And what 1 Timothy 1 does is describe a scenario where this happens to Alex and Manny, but there's other passages that aren't uh, describing a scenario, but explaining the reality under the scenario. So 1 John 2, verse 19, is an example of that. You see it on the screen. 1 John 2, we can use to interpret and understand 1 Timothy 1. Here's what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see the language being said there. Because they went out, it was proof that they weren't actually Christians in the first place. So when we say that disciples wrestle persistently, you might think of it a little bit like regular maintenance on a diamond ring. You know that you're going to need to go get that thing cleaned, get the prongs checked out, make sure it's working just right. And if you don't do that, over time, stuff will build up and you could have a problem. It requires persistent wrestling. And so when we start to think then, what does it mean practically to apply this point that disciples wrestle persistently? Let me suggest two things of how we do that. The first one is this. I want you to think about embracing persistence. Embrace persistence. To recognize in the Christian life, there's no such thing as arrival. This side of heaven. That word doesn't exist in the Christian's dictionary. You broaden the scope of what you're after, and it reorients your vision. If you're driving to Avon for lunch today, you're thinking about timing and arrival differently than if you're driving to Miami for vacation today. It's a longer journey, and you're preparing for a longer journey. And as a Christian, you must embrace persistence. It's a long journey a long, slow obedience in the same direction that the Lord has called us to. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is wrestle in community. Wrestle in community. Verse 18, Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, my child, community. Consider the prophecies previously made about you. Others in the body saying, we see this gifting in you. We're calling you to obedience to continue following Jesus. They're in community there. In community, we look together and we say, sister, don't give up. God is using you. In community, we say, brother, keep an eye on this area of sin in your life. Satan wants to destroy you. In community, we say, keep pressing on because Jesus is worth it. Keep going. It's easy for us to live in community, 
to gather for wings and football and Pinterest and coffee. And all those things are good. And I praise God for each of them except for Pinterest. (laughs) But we live in community. But are you wrestling in community? Would that describe your Christian fellowship? You're following Jesus together, pursuing him together. Disciples wrestle persistently. Let me wrap, wrap up what we're saying here and go back to the beginning of our sermon where I was talking about Emily and I getting engaged. A couple weeks after we had purchased this diamond ring, placed it on her finger, she brought it to me and she said, I think we have a problem. She held it up and the, the diamond had started to tip to the side and it had started to, the prongs had started to twist. It was very concerning. You've only had this thing for like two weeks and I'm in Tending it to be a lifetime on your finger here. If we get this much, we got to go back to the, the diamond store. So we go back and we start talking to the people at the store. And uh, they said, well, you guys must have done something wrong to it. <laughs> We've had it for two weeks. What are you talking about? So we, we want you to fix it. And they said, well, let's look at our schedule. And they said, hey, you can drop it off. And we hope to get to it in the next month. And Emily rightly says, well, I just received this ring. I'm not really excited to hand it to you saying, I don't know if we can get to it in a month or not. So we said, you know what, you guys, you have a cash back guarantee, and we're glad you do. You can actually just keep the ring, and we'll take our cash back. And we drove across the road to a different store and bought a different ring. In essence, what were we saying? We said, look, this diamond is so valuable, we can't take any risks with it. And we don't think you guys are going to take care of it quite right. So we're going to go do something else. The problem wasn't with the diamond itself, was it? No, not at all. It was the value of the diamond that demanded a response from us. And friends, I want you to understand this morning, your response to the gospel does not define the value of the gospel. It is immensely valuable however you respond to it. But your response is critical for displaying and protecting the gospel in your life. And when you reflect honestly It displays Christ's love for you against the backdrop of a sinful heart and says, wow, look at that love on display. And when you receive gratefully, it leads to praise and remembrance over the glorious God behind the gospel who would send his son to die for you. And the response of gratitude, singing of gratitude, life of gratitude says, look, there's something amazing here. And as you wrestle persistently, you show that the gospel is valuable enough to fight for and to protect with your very life. Friends, disciples display and protect the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you with grateful, thankful hearts over your love on display in the person of Jesus Christ who brings this gospel to bear, that he would take our sin and guilt and shame and nail it to the cross that we could be free in you. We thank you for your word that instructs us on the value of your gospel and in how we might protect it, how we might display it in our lives. And Lord, even in our weak 
and frail efforts to display and protect your gospel. We ask for your strength that we could humbly follow you as you've called us to. We ask for your, your grace that when we come up short, we would not revert to trusting in our own strength, our own efforts, our own performance, but would cling to your finished work on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.